Moxtra provides businesses with their own client interaction app for today's digital age. Your app will be a one-stop hub, keeping your clients in continuous connection with your business from anywhere. Manage your team to effectively respond to clients all from within your app. Get your one-stop app at Moxtra.com. It's the hardest hit neighborhood in the hardest hit city in the hardest hit state. Why one particular corner of New York is struggling so much. They know that the reality is they likely had COVID patients in their packed waiting rooms far earlier than anybody realized. And as lockdown orders drag on, some people are pushing states to start lifting them. One of the main concerns is about the economy and keeping jobs. Plus, how artificial intelligence is being used to fight the coronavirus. It's Friday, April 17th. I'm Anne-Marie Fertoli for The Wall Street Journal. Here's what's news. A day after state governors and the White House appeared to come to a consensus on gradually reopening the country, tensions grew over the responsibilities of federal and state governments. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said the states alone can't handle the widespread testing that's needed before restrictions can be eased. The federal government cannot wipe their hands of this and say, oh, the states are responsible for testing. We cannot do it. We cannot do it without federal help. President Trump criticized the governor on Twitter, saying Cuomo should spend more time doing and less time complaining. Optimism that parts of the U.S. could reopen soon pushed U.S. stock markets higher to finish their second straight week of gains. The Dow climbed more than 700 points, or about 3 percent. Investors jumped into stocks and pulled back from haven assets such as gold and treasuries. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy says he'd support adding funding for hospitals to a small business loan program. Both Democrats and Republicans want to refund the stimulus package's Paycheck Protection Program, which ran out of money this week. But the two sides have butted heads over whether to bundle other types of aid with the loan expansion. The consumer products giant Procter & Gamble reported its biggest U.S. quarterly sales increase in decades today. The company was the first big maker of household staples to report its first quarter financial results. The sector got a boost from Americans stocking up on things like toilet paper, laundry detergent and cough medicine to ride out the pandemic. A payroll and HR company needs to be prepared for whatever is going to happen. You could say that over 70 years of experience helping businesses all over the world run smoothly is good preparation. But for ADP, that's not enough. To make sure millions of people are getting paid on time and in compliance, we're staying on top of each new piece of legislation. So when it comes down to it, ADP isn't just a payroll and HR company. We're the company that helps you navigate the complexities. ADP, HR talent, time, benefits, and payroll. Informed by data and designed for people. Across the country this week, Americans took to the streets in defiance of stay-at-home orders during the pandemic. Protests took place in half a dozen states, including Michigan, Minnesota and Virginia, with demonstrators calling for states to start reopening. President Trump signaled support for the protest in a series of tweets today, even after he said governors would make the final call on easing restrictions. Our reporter Alexa Course has more. We spoke with one woman in Virginia who said that If people want to hug, they should be able to hug. And she challenged the social distancing guidelines. But in Michigan, we saw thousands of people came out to the protest, but most of them stayed in their cars. Police said about 150 people were out walking around. And I talked to one organizer in Michigan who said 
he wants to respect social distancing, but also start to open up the economy. Clearly, that raises more questions about if that would be practical, how that would actually work. With more businesses forced to shut down during the pandemic, millions of people in the U.S. are out of work. In the past four weeks, some 22 million Americans have applied for unemployment benefits. What I'm hearing is one of the main concerns is about the economy and keeping jobs. I think people are worried about, you know, how do you balance being able to work and make money with the need to stay home and not spread the virus. Wall Street Journal reporter Alexa Kors. A grim milestone today, more than 150,000 people worldwide have now died from the coronavirus. The U.S. has the highest death toll, more than 34,000 people. The pandemic has overwhelmed hospitals across the country, and it's taking a big toll on small community clinics and private practices in one of New York's hotspots in a neighborhood in central Queens that shares a name with the virus, Corona. Joining me now with more details is Wall Street Journal reporter Rebecca Davis O'Brien. Rebecca, tell us a little bit about what makes this area of Queens a particular hotspot for the coronavirus. Tell us about some of the demographics of the area. Absolutely. So it's it's corona and a few surrounding neighborhoods in central Queens. And what seems to be the case here is that that area of Queens has a huge population of recent immigrant families, um, primarily Latinos and at least 30% of the, the people living in these neighborhoods, the adults have jobs in the service industry and they are living in near poverty or below the poverty line in houses that are, I mean, this is one major factor is that you have multiple generations and multiple families packed into houses. One one person I spoke with described going into four bedroom houses that are actually populated or, you know, there are four different families living in there and each family gets a bedroom. And we're looking at, you know, grandparents, uncles, aunts, kids, parents all living together under the same roof. And we know now more about this virus is that elderly people are at greater risk to contract a serious case and get very sick with it, while children may be carriers and don't actually manifest or show symptoms. So that's one major issue. Another problem here is low income levels, general lack of access to preventative care has been a major problem in a lot of these communities. And the fact that some people just, I mean, a lot of these folks don't have a choice. They have to go to work or they feel like they have to because their homes, their households depend on it. I mean, otherwise no one eats. So, you know, this is a densely packed neighborhood with some language barriers, uh, access to healthcare issues, and some people who still have to commute, you know, and go work in close proximity to other people. You also spoke to medical workers at community clinics and smaller doctor's offices, which are popular in the communities there. Tell us about the toll the virus has taken on them. Sure. So a lot of, you know, we've read a lot about, and deservedly so, about some of the crowding in the local hospitals. But we'd heard that, you know, one issue, uh, and it's been a good thing, there's been a, a sort of a surge in in recent years in community doctors and private practices that serve the needs of the community at a more familial grassroots level. Um, and these are where people will go to get vaccinations for their kids or routine checkups. And there's a sort of a network of them. And a lot of these doctors are now pro- reporting that, first of all, they think they were seeing patients with COVID. They just weren't diagnosed in February 
and they also started getting sick in March. Some of these doctors and health workers estimated that at least 30% of their staff and colleagues had come down with COVID, and that's just ones that we know of, and there have been deaths people in, in the ICU, you know, these are healthcare workers who are on, in some ways, in many ways, on the front lines of this disease. We're hearing from providers across the country about the lack of personal protective equipment. Is that the case in Queens? I think that this is a slightly different issue for these providers. And I mean, that's certainly the case in hospitals. But I think what a lot of these providers would say is that, first of all, they were seeing people who were sick even if they didn't know they were sick. They just they know that the reality is they likely had COVID patients in their packed waiting rooms far earlier than anybody realized, maybe you know weeks before the first confirmed cases happened in New York. So in those cases, they, they weren't wearing masks. They weren't wearing protective gear. They were just seeing their patients in the normal course of business. And then as people became more aware of this, it did take a while for them to realize, a lot of these doctors to realize they needed the same kind of protective gear that uh, we're seeing in the ERs. So, you know, it, it suddenly becomes, you have to get masks for your whole staff. Imagine walking into your pediatrician's office and seeing everyone wearing, you know, a gown and a mask and a face shield. It's not that they feel like they were, they didn't get the support, they just didn't know they needed it. As we continue to see a high number of cases and a high death toll in New York, what are the particular challenges for Corona and the surrounding areas going forward? Corona has has by far the most confirmed cases. And I think one major issue that these doctors all pointed to is just there's so much fear in the community. They know they're getting hard hit. There's, you know, people are worried about putting food on the table. They're worried about their loved ones dying. And I think that, you know, one thing that the mayor's trying to do or that city officials and state officials are trying to do is, is provide more acute care to these communities. I think that's going to be what's going forward. Seeing how the divergent caseloads in different parts of the city, it's clear that Central Queens is going to need some intensive efforts to rehabilitate and to sort of help take care of of this there. Wall Street Journal reporter Rebecca Davis O'Brien, thank you so much for joining me. Of course. Thank you for having me. And finally, researchers are racing to put artificial intelligence to work, tracking the coronavirus and developing possible treatments. For the new episode of The Wall Street Journal's Future of Everything podcast, host Janet Babin spoke with the head of a startup called Insilico Medicine that's using AI and machine learning to identify promising drug molecules that could be used to treat the virus. In the throes of a pandemic, the Insilico team worked even faster than usual. So we generated about 100,000 molecules in about four days. We then narrowed down those 100,000 molecules to about 100. Okay, so just think about this for a minute. From the 100,000 molecules the AI identified, another set of AI processes then narrowed the selection down to the most promising 100 molecules in four days. My team was so eager to do it quickly that they essentially lived in the lab. So they launched the process and then they wait for, you know, 20 hours for it to complete. They time it. If something goes wrong, they restart it. And um, they essentially moved in and slept there. In silico's in the process of making batches of the most promising seven molecules. They'll be tested against the virus in test tubes, and if they work there, they'll then go through several rounds of pricey and time-consuming clinical trials. 
But Alex estimates that if all goes according to plan, a new drug from his lab wouldn't be ready for at least a year. And experts say even that's a long shot. The road to new drugs is peppered with promising attempts that failed. And in this respect, finding new drugs using AI is no different. You can hear more about AI and the coronavirus in the new episode of our Future of Everything podcast. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. And that's what's news for this Friday afternoon. We'll be back on Monday in both the morning and the afternoon. I'm Anne-Marie Fertoli for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for listening.